All right. You have a Bible. Why don't you turn to Micah, chapter 1, please. Micah chapter 1, and hopefully we'll cover 1 and 2 tonight. We come to the, um, the sixth book of the Minor Prophets, and the author is Micah. And this is prior to the captivity of the Northern Kingdom, which is 722. Um, in our introduction, we gave a natural division that as you read the book over and over again, it'll be very, very evident. Uh, it falls into three messages, and it's repeated by the same word here. You find those key words in chapter 1, verse 2. The second message is chapter 3, verse 1. And the third message is chapter 6, verse 1. In chapter 1 and 2, it's to all the people, as we'll see. Chapter 3 through 5 is to the leaders. And chapter 6 and 7 is to the people again. There's also a threefold division by subject matter that some have uh, seen. Chapter 1 through 3, you have the present judgment that we'll cover. 4 and 5, the future blessing which deals with the kingdom age. And then the present repentance that is dealt with in chapter 6 and 7. That gives you a good handle on the book to divide and to be able to see the movement through it. But let's begin here in chapter 1. Verse 1 through 3, you have the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. The introduction here, the word of the Lord came, again indicates divine revelation. All of Scripture is divine revelation. Some people do not believe that all the Word is inspired by God, but we have a problem then to find out who is the one that's going to tell me what is and what is not. The Bible tells me in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 through 21, that all Scripture is by inspiration. is profitable for the man of God to be thoroughly furnished, and it's the old men of all that were carried on by the Spirit of God. And so all is all, whether it's Greek, English, Spanish, or whatever, all. That includes Old and New Testament. Micah's name, remember, means he who is like Yahweh. It's an abbreviated form of Micaiah. And we remember the prophet Micaiah was faithful to speak God's word when all the prophets were speaking falsely. And he told the king, if you come back alive, God has not spoken through me. And the king did not come back. Now, the period that uh, Micah prophesies involves three kings here. They're given to us here. Jotham reigned uh, 750 to 735 B.C., and he had a co-regency with Azariah, or another name the king is known by, Uzziah. Some kings are known by two names, and it was for 10 years. So sometimes you'll get 750 to 740, uh, and the difference is the co-regency. Not everybody mentions them, so sometimes people think there's contradictions that are not. Ahaz reigned from 735 to 715 B.C., and Hezekiah reigned from um, 715 to 687. You can find these kings and their history in 2 Kings 15 to 20. You can cross-reference that with 2 Chronicles 27 to 32. You know, it would have been nice if, um, 
if the history of the Bible, if they put all the, the history that goes on and then insert the, the prophets where they were, and we can just follow them like that. So there are chronological Bibles that you can see as you go along, but it's kind of, um, it, it, it helps to insert them and to put them in the right placing, and it, it opens up the uh, narrative a lot more. Now the word saw, as we find here, indicates the vision when he was awake. Dreams are when people are asleep. Um, many of um, the prophets had dreams and visions. And the message is to Samaria and Jerusalem, both capitals of the northern and the southern kingdom. In verse 2 to 5, you have the coming judgment. In verse 2 to 4, the elders, or the address here, is to all the peoples at the return of God's judgment. Here, verse 2 says, Here, all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord, uh, from his holy temple. So here... Now, God is addressing the time when he's coming back for judgment. Psalm chapter 2 speaks of the coming back of the Lord for judgment. Psalm 2 gives you the preview of what you find in Revelation 19, the second coming. But in Psalm 2, it's in preview form. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 speaks of the Lord coming back to avenge those who have been persecuted by those who hate Christians and the gospel. Revelation 19, you have the literal second coming. Jesus coming back on a white horse and we follow him and to set up the kingdom. This is the first of three sermons again that begins with the word here. The Lord Yahweh was a witness against the sins of mankind. He is ever-present, he's all-knowing, he sees everything, nothing escapes him. Um, when we go to prayer, we have to keep that in mind. Sometimes we think we're informing God about something he doesn't know. And sometimes um, he deals with our hearts because we're not being honest in what we're telling him. And so it's a human trait. Tragically, we fi find it recorded in Scripture throughout. As Moses uh, killed the Egyptian and looked this way and that way but not up. Uh, as Ananias and Sapphira said, they gave everything to the church and really they did not, and God struck them dead, and many, many other examples of that. Um, the Lord Yahweh is a witness here, the location, the holy temple from heaven. This is his true dwelling. You remember that God told Moses, make sure you make everything according to the pattern that I had given to you in the mountain, because the tabernacle was, was a copy of the throne of God in heaven. Um, read Ezekiel chapter 1 and read chapter 9, uh, 10 there also that gives you the two aspects of the vision of the, th the throne of God and many other passages. Um, he will come to destroy the um, location of, um, of sin, the high place of the earth. Look at verse 3. He says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Um, many of these shrines were in high places. Always we find that uh, when Solomon was reigning, that um, as he was building the temple, they still sacrificed in the high places, even after the temple was. And many of these um, uh, pagan ashrams were there. Um, he brings about earthquakes at times 
God makes the earth tremble. In verse 4, he says, The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will spill like wax before the fire, like water pouring down a steep place. Very picturesque as God just folds and moves and shakes the earth. You know, it's amazing the um, natural forces that God allows to take place at time. You think of the ocean, you think of, of hurricanes, you think of um, floods uh, and different things like that. And it's just an amazing thing, the destructiveness that is in that. And yet, many times it's just natural consequence that comes through the aging of the earth and different things, the fault lines and everything. But yet God does at times tell us in the scripture that he moves his hand to bring these things together. And he brings judgment through those things. Now in verse 5, you have the reason for God's judgment. It was apostasy by Jacob and the sins of Israel. Verse 5, he says, All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Um, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, as you know. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, served Baal. And Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal in Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 16.31 on down and had a great victory. But then Jezebel got wind of it, and she swore that she was going to take Elijah's head off. And boy, he freaked out and headed south. And he even wanted God to take his life for him. Um, she was quite an evil woman. Uh, idolatry spread from the north down to Judah. Their high places through the marriage of Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel in Second Kings 11, Second Chronicles 24, 7. And you always have these unaligned, unequally yoked marriages that came into the kingdom. Remember, the northern kingdom didn't have one good king, 19 bad. The uh, southern kingdom, I believe, had 12 good ones, 12 bad ones, 8 good ones. Um, and that was Judah and Benjamin. But sooner or later, the, uh, north, the southern kingdom didn't learn from her sister, the northern kingdom, and she went the very same way, a hundred and some difference later years later, but nevertheless, she didn't learn. In verse 6 and 7, you have the spiritual harlotry of Samaria that would be judged by the instrument of Assyria. It says, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places of planting a vineyard. I will pour out her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathers it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. So here in verse 6, Samaria was utterly destroyed by Assyria, as we know, just according to the prophecies. The beauty of her palace of ivory on the hill would be reduced to the ground 
for vineyards to be planted there. The stones would be rolled down. I remember the first time I went to Israel in uh, 78, I believe, 78, 79, I can't remember. We went to Samaria, beautiful place there between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Beautiful scene. You can see to the Mediterranean all the way to the other side. It's just a beautiful valley there. But it's the area of Samaria. And there's very few Samaritans left. They're very inbred. And, uh, and they get hostile, so nobody goes there anymore. It's desolate. But um, it was a beautiful location up on a hill. You can see everything beautifully around. And yet Assyria came down and just destroyed it completely. Remember, Ahab had his palace of ivory, very luxurious. King Hoshea of Israel withheld payment, tribute to Assyria. So Shalmaneser III ravaged the land, and Sargon finalized the captivity in 2 Kings 17, 4 through 16. Sargon in his inscription claimed that he deported 27,920 Israelites. And remember, the Assyrians used to cross-populate people, so they would take the people of Samaria, take them to Assyria, but they would locate them in different locations. They would cross-populate them, and then they would bring people from other regions and bring them into Samaria and leave some there. So they would mix, they would be isolated from their people, they were intertwined, they would forget their heritage, they would marry other things, and their culture would be absorbed, and they would be destroyed. This was their, their, their practice. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans because they were what they call half-breeds. They were not Jewish. They were not Gentile. They were a combination of the two. The idols of Samaria, of precious metals, notice here. Um, from which they had profit from their harlotry, would be melted down and carried away to Assyria. So all this luxury that came from the occultic practices, the sensual worship of Baal that brought great profit, the practice of sacred prostitution that was in practice. Amos and Hosea have already prepared the ground for Micah. From verse 8 on down to 16, we have the prophet's mourning and his lamentation. Verse 8 and 9, the grief over the coming judgment is given to us. He says, Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostrich. For the, her wound is incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has come to the, the gate of my people to Jerusalem. And so here, the prophet went wailing and howling, barefooted, naked, referring to only a loincloth, lamenting the grief like a jackal and an ostrich, which apparently make a very um, uh, painful, gruesome sound when they're lamenting. And so very picturesque here, the metaphor and the likeness to the prophet. The devastation would be so great beyond any imagination. And he declared that the wound of Judah, notice, is incurable in verse 9, indicating she had passed the time of repentance. Man can never blame God for being 
too quick to judge or impatient. We certainly have the record of the flood, 120 years. We have the record of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the judgment of the Tower of Babel. And we see God's patience, his long-suffering, always warning before judgment comes, always giving all opportunity. But then that line is crossed, and then God's judgment cannot be averted at all. But Isaiah says it's a strange way and a strange thing for God to deal with judgment. He much rather forgive than to bring judgment upon his people. An incurable disease. Rebellion against God, not listening. Verse 10 to 15, the prophet goes into a section that is a play on words to communicate their condition and judgment. Verse 10, he says, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Beth Aphra. Roll yourself in the dust. Pass by, uh, pass by in naked shame, you inhabitants of Shafer. The inhabitants of Zeonan does not go out. Beth Ezel mourns. Its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitants of Merath pines for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitants of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steed. She was the beginning of sin, the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you shall give presence to Moresheth, Gath, the houses of Axib shall be alike to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitants of Merisha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Now, in this long section, a play on words for the judgment is coming. In verse 10, Gath means winepress. They were to not weep in weep town, lest the Philistines would rejoice over the calamity. It reminds you of when David, remember when they slew Jonathan and Saul and David, lamented them. And don't tell it in Gath, lest they boast about the victory over them. And that's the idea here. Beth Afra in verse 10 means house of dust. Roll yourself in dust. A sign of mourning. Jeremiah 6.26, Ezekiel 27.30 is a good cross-reference. Schaefer means beautiful in verse 11. They were to pass by naked to their shame and dishonor by the Assyrians. Zanon in verse 11 means going out, but goes does not go out to help their neighbor against the enemy in battle. When they should have, they didn't. Beth Ezel means house nearby, but will be taken away giving no refuge rather than helping the, those who are fleeing. They will not prove to be helpers. Verse 12, 
Merith means bitterness. Though it looked for good, only disaster would come down from Yahweh to the gate of Jerusalem. This is all the judgment that's coming upon them by their own doing, by the grieving of God's spirit, by rejecting God's word, by syncretizing the pagan religions under the name of Yahweh, by rejecting the prophets, stoning the prophets, telling the prophets to be quiet. In verse 13, Lachish means horse town. Harness your steeds. King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, had it as a military fortress against the Philistines. 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. This is not the lakeish up north where Abraham went to. This is down south. Southwest of Micah's hometown, Moresheth Gath. Solomon began depending on horses, as you know, and chariots for commercial purposes and became to be the source of his trust. Deuteronomy 17, 16 is a very clear decree to the king not to trust in his horses or multiply them. In 1 Kings 10, 26 to 28, you get the fact where he did that for commercial purposes. He was to make a copy of the law that he not exalt himself against his brethren, not go to the left or the right. 1 Kings 17, 16 again, when that king came to power. This was decreed before there was no king at all. This was during the time of Moses. There are others who believe the horses here have to do with idolatry. But um, we're not sure. It could be. But certainly it was a dependency. And whenever people had horses and chariots, they're like having tanks um, in that day. Morisheth comes next in verse 14, which means possession of Gath. A gift for the dowry of a bride. What a contradiction that she would be ravished now. Micah's town. Exib means lion deceit town. Such it would be to the king. They would say, yeah, we'll be there for you, but they wouldn't be. You see, once the Assyrians would start coming down, panic would hit the entire region. Moresha, in verse 15, means a crest of a hill. But it would be a dulam, a refuge or conquered. So just everything contrary to what they were to be. And again, it marks the grief of their children, the captivity, all that is going on. In verse 16, he says, make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. And so the call to express their grief, lamentation, they would shave all their head, they would cut it. 
It was a sign of grief, of mourning. The word eagle there is the word vulture. I don't know why it's translated eagle, but it's vulture. And it's the horror that's going to happen to them as the kids in the future generation will spend those generations under captivity. 722, they would be scattered all over Assyria. When Babylon, through Nebuchadnezzar, came in in 606, 596, and then 586 on the last one, then all of Israel, the northern kingdom, would be gathered around Assyria, which is Iraq and Persia today, and they would go into Babylon. And they would be there not only those 100 years, but the 70 years in the captivity of Babylon. And so they would literally be away from their land all those years. The panic that would strike them as they would see the Assyrian armies approaching is recorded for us in Isaiah 10, 28 through 32. As they would see the armies coming forth and they were just were panic stricken. And so the judgment of God is certain. They would not escape it. When you come to chapter 2. Verse 1 through 11, you have the sins of the wealthy against the poor. Uh, we touched on that two weeks ago. We'll go just through general commentary. But verse 1 through 5, you have the injustice to the people. And it's always the people that suffer when people are wealthy, if they have no moral base. And they also suffer at the hands of politicians, those who are ruling, as we've noted. Here in verse 1, he says, woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And so Micah denounces these individuals who plan and plot and put together these plans while they're in their home at night in bed. And they're thinking about how can I multiply my wealth? How can I? get that nice vineyard I saw the other day over there up north. And they just put these things together. And the word woe is, has the idea of startling grief. It, it means judgment. God is the one proclaiming this. Woe to those who do these things thinking they're going to be able to get away with it. Thinking that it's only the here and now that's important because after we die, there's nothing after that. What a shock it's going to be to so many people that believe that this is the only life and that once they die, there is nothing else. Atheists, agnostics, humanists. If there is a God, and there is, it would be a sad commentary on him if he created us simply for this world and to be here under this fallen nature to try to strive to get along and do all you can and then grow old and maybe die through cancer, whatever it is, and everything you work for, you leave behind, and that's all. What would be the, the idea behind that? But God has more. God has you in mind and myself to live with him in eternity if we make the right decision towards him. This life is very brief as the scriptures are very clear. James says like a vaporous smoke. One day we're here, next day we're gone. 
and um, in the morning you drive out in the early winter and there's a mist in, in the air and no sun, but it then burns off. Picture of our life. Um, these individuals thought they were in darkness and no one could see, but um, um, they couldn't wait for morning light to implement their, um, um, their plans. But notice that, that they did it because they simply had the power in their hand to do it. And there have been individuals through life with great power, great money, and, and great positions of authority that have been asked many times, how much money is enough? And just a little more than I have. Or, or why did you do it? Simply because I could. And, and that's the nature of man. You see, what restrains man is when he understands that there's consequences and there's a real chance that something can happen regarding those consequences and that there's someone else that I must give an account to one day. Those are great restrainers. They deter the evil nature of man. Just as policemen giving you a ticket deters your speedy. You may have some money to put away and throw away. But after a while, you start thinking, why am I throwing it away? Or I can't afford this. <laughs> and you start slowing down. Consequences do work. If you're late at work all the time, pretty soon you don't have a job. You're fired. Simple. Consequences. And so here they were oblivious that God was watching everything. In verse 2. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses, and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. And so here, Micah declares the specific evil. They were cold-hearted crimes they were committing. Coveting particular fields in a, through violence. They weren't even trying to get them through legislation or decrees at first, but they use brute force if need be. Certainly the courts, as we'll see through this book, were very corrupt. The judges, they were being bribed and everything else. The word covet there simply means desiring something that someone else has to try to make it your own. And there is such a, such a spirit of, covetousness and envy in the world today. Everybody's competing to get whatever anyone else has. And, and there seems to be no fill, no satisfaction. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a car, some clothes, a house, or whatever, but where is enough? And as soon as you get that new car, and it's great until... A little later, then you're looking at the next model the next year. And again, if you can afford a new car, there's no problem with that. But be good stewards of it. Thank God for what he's giving you. Take care of it. And uh, realize that the car doesn't make you happy. It just gets you from point A to point B. It can be a Volkswagen. It can be a mercedes it could be a Rolls Royce. It's going to get you from point A to point B. That's all it's going to do. And then somebody will come by and crash it for you. And then it'll be a different story. 
Micah declared their evil deeds were to rob them of their inheritance. The injustice is marked by the word oppress. They defrauded deceitfully. The entire family would lose that portion that was passed on to them from family to family, generations. Not only is not just the value of the land or the property, but the sentimental value that goes. Often when people um, have um, things that have been handed down to them from their parents and their grandparents and great-grandparents, and they have it in their home, and some lowlife will break in and steal something that really is of no value, but the, but the sentimental value for that, for the person from which it's taken, is irreplaceable. And it's heartless. No compassion, no sense of dignity or honor. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8 through 10 speaks about the same thing. Remember, Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah. He's dealing with the same problems, the coveting of fields, vineyards, uh, uh, corruption in, in the tribunal courts and the judges and all. And in verse 3, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. So here in verse 3, Micah declares certain things about these evil people. All four are under the authority of Yahweh. Therefore, thus saith the Lord Yahweh. He's the one that's speaking. The man is simply the instrument. Sometimes God will use you to minister the gospel to someone and you will blow your mind how God will minister and even save somebody as he gives you the wisdom, the words, the verses that come back. And you are so shocked at what you're saying, but you don't want to look like you're surprised. But then after they leave, you go, whoa, where'd that come from? And God is so faithful. We're simply the mouthpiece of God if we open our hearts to him. And here, God was against the wealthy, covetous culprits devising disaster, heartache. God would punish them with a yoke of bondage that would not be removed from their necks as they would be taken to Syria and to different places. God would humble their proudful haughtiness. There's just an arrogance about the human race especially when a person is in a power position or in a position where they tower over everybody. And it's pride that caused Satan to be thrown out of heaven. It's what caused him to bring the rebellion in heaven. Pride. In verse 4, Micah declared their hopeless words in the day that God would punish them. He says, In that day one shall take up a proverb against you and lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people, how he has removed them from me. 
through a turncoat, he has divided our fields. And so in verse 4, their castigation would be certain, acknowledging God's judgment by Assyria, bewailing with bitter regret in a proverb. How often and how many times do you remember being in the world, maybe in high school or afterwards, and warnings that went out to people, and they just thought they were so hot, living the way they did, doing what they did, and and thinking, ah, I'll never get busted, I'll never this, nothing will happen to me. And all of a sudden, the day came. And they just regretted it, and they just lamented, they just hated the consequences. Not really the sin, but the consequences, the repercussion that came upon them. That brings forth death, because once you're over that emotional breakdown, you'll go back right to it all over again. Because what else are you going to do? The reference to turncoat refers to the, a traitor or rebel. And it's here to the king of Assyria. You see, Assyria would be the um, rod of God's anger. In Isaiah 10.5, he tells them. Now remember, we just finished Jonah, right? God just saved the Ninevites. Yet God was going to use those same individuals to take the northern kingdom into captivity. Look at verse 5. Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Micah declares here that carrying away from their land and the captivity will come and they will, their land will be left desolate. No one would be left to survey the boundaries of the land as the land was given by lots. The land would go back in the year of Jubilee to the rightful owner, so you would rent out your land according to the number of years left in the year of Jubilee. And you would count down because that land would ultimately come back to you. It would be left desolate. Verse 6 to 11, you have the sin of rejection of the prophets of God. In verse 6, he says, Therefore you shall have night without vision. You shall have darkness without divination. The sun... Oops, I'm sorry. Let me go to chapter 2. I'm in chapter 3 here. I looked over. Verse 6, he says, Do not prattle. You say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. So here in verse 6, God reveals through Micah the wealthy people what they told the prophets of God. Not to speak for it. They got tired of it. The prophets of God were faithful. They declared the judgment to come over and over and over again. The word their prattle means to drip or drop. It's used for speech or for prophecy in Job 29:22 and Amos 7:16. Notice the people were saying, "Stop saying these things." Like a drip irritating, bothering us. The same old thing. You're making our life miserable. Be quiet. Now this is nothing new. 
Isaiah 30, verse 10, Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31, and Amos 2, 12, they told him to get out of there, go prophesy in your own hometown. Sometimes you and I minister the gospel and we're sharing with people, sometimes loved ones and friends, and they don't want to hear it. And we need to just back off. We can't force people to be born again. We can't convince people to go to heaven. But we do communicate as the Lord allows us. But when a person doesn't want to hear from me anymore, I back off. There is no pressure. As long as a person asks questions and they're open, I share. I don't share with any, um, any fervency thinking that, man, I'm going to save them. No, I just trust the Lord can reach them if their heart is open. I know that God can convict them, that God can turn on the light, and they can call on him and be saved. And that's what I'm hoping when I share the gospel. But it's an individual choice that takes place. God doesn't um, force anybody to go to heaven. And so, if they're open to God's word, then God will deal with them. The words would be honored by God. As they asked us, no longer would he, they prophesy. He gives them their desire. You've heard the saying that says, be careful what you wish for. They would not cast their pearls to the swine anymore. And there comes a time when people are so blasphemous that you just back off. God told Jeremiah three times, I don't want you praying for these people anymore. That is an amazing statement that God would tell Jeremiah three times. He had given them up. In verse 7, he says, You who are named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? And so God rebukes the entire nation through Micah for their ignorance to think they had the authority to tell God to be silent. God asks some rhetorical questions here to the people. Is the spirit of the Lord restricted? The word restricted means to be short or impatient. The context will determine which one it means. Micah said... The fact that they told him and other prophets to be silent did not mean they could silence or restrain the Spirit of God. They could kill a prophet, they could run a prophet out of town, they could imprison him, but they could not silence the Spirit of God. God would just go get somebody else. Paul the Apostle was stoned at Lystra. He dragged them out of the city. They were looking down on Paul. He was caught up to the third heaven. He came back, shook himself off, and he went back in the city. I'm sure they just looked at him. What is the matter with this guy? How do you stop people like that? You have to kill them. That's the heritage of the prophets in the Christian community. You see, while other religions will kill you if you don't buy their religion, we as Christians lay down our life for those who hate us and those who don't want to hear the gospel. That's the history of Christianity. 
When people confuse Christianity with Catholicism, they blame Christianity for the crusade wars. Those were not Christians. They were Catholics from Europe, from the Vatican, sent by the Pope. Those were not believers. The Protestant Reformation came afterwards, but those were not believers. Christians don't kill people for land or for conversion. The Catholic faith is a religion, not a relationship. There's a big difference. And I know what I'm talking about because I was born in Mexico City. I was raised a Catholic, and I know what Catholicism is about. I've seen Catholicism at its worst throughout the world, the Philippines, Mexico, Central, South America. Catholicism in the United States is a pussycat. It's been defanged. It's been sprayed and neutered. You go to other countries, it is a bear and a lion. And it will throw you in jail or even kill you if you preach the gospel in certain places. And so it has two faces. Here again, you cannot silence the Lord. The answer to the rhetorical question is no. The other one is, are these his doings? In verse 7, are these the ways of his character, meaning God to be silent about sin and judgment to come? No. Is he responsible for the, for the judgment of sin? No. They couldn't blame God for the judgment. It was their own fault. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Yes. The word of God's for your benefit for mine if we obey it, if we walk in it. And it's also a benefit to the one who's in rebellion or disobedience as they acknowledge and confess and repent. Because God's in the business of forsaking, of, of forgiving people, not forsaking them or judging them. That's the last recourse. That he takes. Notice. In verse 8. It says lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe. With the garment from those who trust you as they pass by. Like men return from war. So here. In, in verse 8. God accuses the rich of treachery against the poor. As the enemy is coming and they're fleeing and perhaps they have their few things they're trying to get away with, these wealthy take advantage of them and just rip those things off as they're running by or coming rather than helping them or anything. Just like, you know, they're refugees running. Cruel. The word pull off. It's like a marauding party. Like soldiers stripping the bodies taking the, uh, uh, the booty from the uh, conquest. The references to the pledge, perhaps also security, like that was in the law of Exodus 22, 26 to 27, where you would give your garment to the person that you loaned you some money when you went off to work. You'd go to work, and then you'd come back, and you'd pay some of that debt, and they would return our garment for the night so you'd be warm. Then you would give it back to them in the morning. You go work again and pay a little more of it. 
this may be a reference to that all. Just pulling that garment, no compassion. In verse 9, it says, The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children. You have taken away my glory forever. So here in verse 9, God accused the people of becoming uncompassionate, defenseless widows. Um, They were left homeless. Their children sold to slavery. Ultimately would go into captivity. They would foreclose their mortgages. We have records of that in 2 Kings 4.1 where the two sons of the widow and the prophet Elijah, you know, provided the oil to sell so they could pay off their debt. The children were denied the blessings that God had for them in the next generation. They would go into captivity. The children of the glory of God. The preservation of those in faith, those who would serve God. But now the children would be in captivity. In verse 10, he says, Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is defiled. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. So God proclaimed their ultimate captivity. The reality was that little time was left. They would not rest in that land that God had given to them. A beautiful land, a land of milk and honey, a land that had everything for them. And yet they would be removed from it because of their apostasy from God. How I have seen People who have walked with God and God has just turned them around in the world and just blessed them and everything. And they start meddling with the world again, whether it be the husband, the wife, or both of them. And they lose everything. They go back in the world. They bring destruction on themselves, their children, their family. How sad that is. And yet every one of us have that capacity if we don't listen to the Lord. Notice the reason is that they defile the land. God told them back in Leviticus 18, 25 and 28 that the land would vomit them out like it had vomited the people before because of their practices of idolatry, their promiscuity. They're disobeying God. The repercussion was not good. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction. Notice verse 11. He says, if a man should walk in false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be the pratter of his people. So here... Um, the extreme condition, um, being completely out of touch with God. These individuals wanted these false prophets speaking because they would speak through false spirits, giving them the message they wanted to hear. They would commend them for their evil. They would applaud them. They would say they were right with God. Drink up, party. It's interesting that one of the chief characteristics of the emergent church is their propensity to want to have liberty to drink and that there's nothing wrong. Pastors, elders, 
and people in the church. It was a national epidemic in the major minor prophets. It's a major epidemic in our nation, in America. Why would anybody as a Christian want to go there if we did that in the world and nothing good came of it? Absolutely nothing good. I don't understand it. The luxury of wealth allows you to um, purchase your friends. Yes, men. These were yes prophets. Their wealth allowed them the luxury of corrupting themselves and destroying themselves. These false prophets would um, reinforce their deception and lies. Even he would be the pratter of this people. Even in the book of Judges, we have people had their own prophets, <laughs> their own priests. Interesting. Notice when you come to verse 12 and 13, you have these last two verses, the remnant restored at the kingdom age. Verse 12 says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. And so here in verse 12, the future hope of the regathering. God is the speaker there in verse 12, being uh, no one being excluded from the house of Israel. Micah goes from the prophecy of judgment in verse 11 right into the kingdom age. Makes no announcement, no division, no explanation, nothing. He just jumps into it. Whether he knew he was speaking about the kingdom, we don't know. Peter says sometimes they knew, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they try to figure out, I don't know. The kingdom age is mentioned in great detail in the next two, in chapter 4 and 5. And it deals very, very clear about the kingdom age. Some people think we're in the kingdom age. Really? Wow. If this is the kingdom age, we're in trouble. Um, God will establish the kingdom age after the great tribulation when we come back with Jesus Christ to set up the kingdom. Second Thessalonians, we come back with him to set it up. Um, God declares the identity of the full number. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. So the context is the remnant of Israel. It has nothing to do with the Christian. It has nothing to do with the church. This is the remnant of Israel that Paul speaks about in Romans 9, 10, 11. Not all that are Israel, are Israel. Just because they're born as national Israelite doesn't mean they are part of the remnant. The remnant means all who believe in Messiah. They will call on the Lord at the end of the tribulation period. Um, the remnant appears here six times in Micah 2, 12, 4, 7, 5, 3, 5, 7, 5, 8, and 7, 18. It's a key phrase for the book of Micah. Um, 
Don't believe when people tell you that God is through with Israel. It's called replacement theology. God is not through with Israel. God still has a great day for Israel. The whole kingdom age is for Israel. The tribulation and great tribulation to prepare Israel for her Messiah. Notice in 12, still God declared their unity based on him. I will put them together like sheep of the fold. I, repeated three times in this verse, God. Jesus said, the other sheep I have of this fold. And I also must bring them. They will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd speaking about the Jew and Gentile one in John ten sixteen. God declares he would care and protect them like a flock in the midst of their pasture under the vigilant eye of the shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. In verse 13, the future hope is reconciled to their Messiah. As they rejected him in his first coming, they will call upon him in the second coming. Jesus will present, be present with them as the one who breaks open will come up before them, it says. Jesus was sent to his own, his own received them not in John 1.11. He said there one comes in his own name, him you will receive. He's talking about the Antichrist. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. How many times I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. If you had known this, your day, the things that were prepared for you, now they're left to you desolate. Luke 19, 41 through 44. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he pronounced judgment over her. And he tells the women as he's going to the cross, weep not for me, weep for your children. Or Tyler would come in in 70 AD and level the city. Disperse the Jews, slaughter them throughout the world, dispersion, and they would not have a homeland until 1948. Nearly 2,000 years. Judgment fell upon Israel for rejecting their Messiah. Jesus said, If I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Matthew twenty three thirty nine. the second coming the notice Jesus will be their king they will break out pass through the gate go out by it their king will pass before them with the Lord Yahweh at their head so you have the millennial reign in chapter 4 verse 1 the Messiah's reign in 4-7 and Messiah's birth in 5-2. And we'll get into that. And so the future time for Israel, when the church age is over and we are removed in the rapture, it's going to be seven years of tribulation and great tribulation. The middle of that will be the abomination of desolation where Jesus spoke about the Antichrist going to the temple declaring himself God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. From that time, Israel flees to the wilderness. God will house her in the wilderness. We believe is the city of Petra over Jordan. They will call upon the name of the Lord. And Jesus will gather the rest of them. And we will be coming back to set up the kingdom. Fight the battle of Armageddon. And then the kingdom age will be for the Jew. We will rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. The people that didn't take the mark of the beast will 
repopulate the earth. People will live and marry and have children and die just like we do now. Not us. Those who didn't take the mark of the beast. Those who did don't enter in their dam. And Satan is bound for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, he is let loose again. And he leads the last rebellion. Only to show and to prove that the problem is not the environment. Jesus is ruling and reigning for a thousand years. The problem is the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. And then there's the white throne judgment. When all those who have rejected Jesus Christ are brought up. The sea, hell, everything is given up. And he judges them according to the books. And then the earth and the heavens will be made new. The new eternity with Jesus Christ. And we will be with him forever and ever and ever. Great time to come. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Thank you for tonight and for your word, Lord. I pray for every person here. Your hand be upon them. You watch over them, Lord. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would speak to their hearts. Someone over the internet, Lord, that you allow them to understand your love and your ability and desire to save them, Lord, as they call on your name and repent from their sins. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can ask him to save you right now. A simple prayer of repentance is what's needed. If you see yourself as a sinner before God and Christ, the one who died for your sins, then you can call upon him and he will save you right now. If this is your desire, this is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.